Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God has forgiven you. So on the one hand, while it is a mark of conversion, on the other hand, it is something that sometimes a Christian can withhold. On the one hand, if you've met Christ in conversion, if you are a Christian of the born-again brand, because that's the only brand that counts to God, then you will love other born-again Christians. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are looking at spiritual gifts in our study of Romans chapter 12. These gifts are given to believers by God at the time they come to genuine faith in Jesus Christ. The gifts are given in order that through them we can glorify God. As we pick up in verse 9 of Romans 12 today, we find Paul encouraging his readers to love without hypocrisy in order to ensure that those who exercise their spiritual gifts will truly bring glory to God rather than a stumbling block to unbelievers. Let love be without hypocrisy. The Greek word hypokritos comes directly into English as hypocrite. And it's actually two Greek words brought together that literally means a play actor. It was used of an actor in a Greek tragedy. Um, He would wear a a false face. If you remember in Greek tragedies, there was no lights, there was no backdrop, there were no decorations. They just carried masks so that you could see what part they were playing. And Paul, in essence, here is saying, don't put on the mask of love while being unloving in your actions. Do not be an actor who's playing the role of showing love while doing otherwise. Let your love be without hypocrisy. Now, this word love is going to flow all the way through these verses. We're going to see it over and over and over again in different forms, but you won't miss it, I hope, this morning. This first word, love, is directly translated. It's the word that you often hear as agape love. We anglicize it, but it's agape or agapao, the verb. Agape love. What is agape love? It is willful love. Sometimes it's used negatively of the world's love. Jesus said they love, they willfully choose their evil deeds so they will not come to the light. Most often it's used of God's love. Like in our marriages where we are to have a willful love, not simply a love based on emotion or attraction, but a love that is based on knowing what God wants us to do and then choosing to do it, a love based on the will. Even so, in the body of Christ, we are to have this willful kind of love. No fooling, no faking, no acting. Love without hypocrisy. True love doesn't say, hey, it's great to have you call me at midnight when you're thinking on the inside, you are so insensitive that you would call me at this time. True love doesn't say, it is great to see you when on the inside you're thinking, you're just a big pain in the neck. (laughs) You say, should I tell them that they're a big pain in the neck? Well, sometimes there is a place to speak the truth in love, but more often than not, we just need to examine our own wicked hearts. And why do we view them as a pain in the neck? You see, God says he demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, big pains in the neck. 
Christ died for us. God wanted to have a relationship with us. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Christ is Him you have sent. And so God loves sinners and so are we. We're to hate sin, but we're to love the sinner. God wants us to have love without hypocrisy. Let's read further into the verse. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, there's not a single English word that translates the word abhor, and that's why in some of your English translations, it's rendered differently. Because if you're doing a word-for-word correspondence and translation, there's not a single word that captures the full nuance of the Greek. Yes, you could translate it, hate what is evil, but it includes much more than hatred. The word abhor means to loathe, probably considered the greatest Greek expert of the last century, Mofart, translates it, regard evil with horror. It has the idea of loathing evil, of separating oneself from evil. Now you read that and you say, well, why would he write that to Christians? Why would he tell born-again people to loathe, to separate, and to abhor evil? For the simple reason when you get saved, you still have your fallen Adamic nature. And we live in a day, especially in the atmosphere of these last days, days of sexual permissiveness and days of sexual perversion, the days of Noah and the days of Lot, that Jesus said we characterize the last of the last days before the coming of the Son of Man. We live in such an atmosphere of evil, we can get used to that evil, the old frog in the kettle syndrome. And so the devil will try to convince us that we ought to manage evil but not abhor it. So as Christians, sometimes we schedule time for evil. We flirt with it. We see how close we can get to the flame of evil, but we don't abhor evil. We may not want to offend someone and take a stance for what is right, lest they think we're being judgmental. Sometimes we buy a ticket to go see evil. Sometimes we pay monthly to entertain ourselves with evil. Sometimes because we're so immersed in, it, immersed in it before long, we're applauding the girl that gets the man seductively or the man that seduces the woman. Businessmen give their cards and they invite people into evil. Christians will go home today from church and some will literally log on to evil. Before long, you don't loathe evil, you're laughing at evil. And the things that you will laugh at are not the things that you abhor. God doesn't want us to manage evil. He wants us to abhor with evil. We are to have a holy hatred for evil. A daughter came home from college and she told her mom about a particular movie she was going to see that evening and her mother was listening knowing that it was not a movie that Jesus would go to. And as she was mixing the salad, she reached over on the counter and took a can of garbage and dumped it in and started mixing it up. She said, Mom, what are you doing? You're ruining the salad. She said, I thought that if you would allow a little garbage into your mind, you would mind a little garbage in your stomach. You see, many times we don't really abhor evil. We may abhor getting caught. We may abhor the consequences of evil. When I was in the seventh grade, I'll never forget it, my first day there at junior high, and school was out and we were walking home. As we were walking home, there was a kid in my neighborhood, he was in the ninth grade, Paul. And Paul had taken this common kitchen product that I'll leave unnamed, and he was inhaling it. 
was a food product and he was inhaling it. And I was absolutely terrified and frightened to see how his body would react. I remember years later, I met him when I was saved and and he was at the bottom of life and I tried to witness to him, but he clung to evil so much, he literally spit at me and asked me to leave his presence. And the next time I heard Paul's name, he was dead on drugs. And so this particular company had lawsuits that were pending against them. And so they put a product on the label, death or serious injury if this product is inhaled. But it didn't seem to stop the liability claims that kept coming at the company. So some of their attorneys got together and said, what else can we write? What do people fear more than death or injury? And one attorney said they fear the way they look. And so they put a new warning on that sniffing this product, inhaling this product could disfigure your face. And it was true because nothing disfigures the face like death. And so they wrote, inhaling this product may cause facial disfigurement. And the abuse of it went way down almost to nothing. Now, it's kind of funny when I think about that. Because some people were not troubled by the possibility of death or injury, but this one consequence, the potentiality of being disfigured, it it scared them to death. What terrifies you about sin? Is it the ugly consequences of sin, the painful loss, the disease, the addiction? Is it death? You know, as a pastor, anyone who's in ministry today, you hear everything and you're no longer shockable. Every imaginable sin you think people could commit, you hear of it in a pastor's study. And it terrifies me because I repeatedly see the the, the awful consequences and the heartache and the destruction that it brings. But as bad as the consequences of sin, God doesn't want us simply to abhor the consequences. He wants us to abhor evil itself. Why? Because He is so holy. But many Christians are not willing to pay that price. Now, that's the negative aspect to godly love. Abhor what is evil, but he's not done. He gives a positive aspect. Abhor what is evil, and then he says, cling to what is good. So true love turns from evil, but it doesn't simply turn from evil. It has to cling to that which is good. And that's important. God wants us to cling, to hold on to with all our might, that which is good. Now, the word cling is an interesting word, actually, because it's a word that's used elsewhere in the Bible to describe the marriage relationship. But what he says in this one verse, Jesus preached a whole sermon about, about abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. Hold your finger here for a second and turn to Matthew's gospel. You're in Romans. Just go back, and the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel, is the gospel according to Matthew. And turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. I want you to see a classic illustration of love that hated hypocrisy and love that clung to that which was good. And the illustration comes from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, who, of course, was the personification of perfect, non-hypocritical love, who abhorred what was evil, who clung to what is good. And he's addressing in this chapter, if you remember, the religious leaders of the day. Notice how the chapter opens. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. That is, they teach the Torah, they teach the law of Moses, they teach the Bible. Now look at verse 3. Therefore, All that they tell you, do and observe. 
but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. The problem is they did not practice that which they preached and taught. Look at verse 5. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. And that's the mark of a self-righteous, hypocritical person. Whatever he does, he lets you know about it. And if he has done something really spiritual, he can't keep it to himself. Case in point, for they brought in their phylacteries and lengthened the tassels of their garments. A phylactery was an ancient verse pack. When I was a new Christian, we used to carry these little verse packs and and you would hold in them the verses you're memorizing. Well, they literally, based on Deuteronomy 16, tied them to their forehead, and they put them on their wrists. When I was traveling recently to Israel, God in His providence set me for 11 hours next to an Orthodox Jewish rabbi who was the head and is the head of a seminary in Jerusalem and travels to the United States seven or eight times a year to speak to Jewish rabbis in this country. And in the middle of the conversation, everything stopped. It was that time, on came the prayer shawl, on came the phylactery on the hand, on the forehead, and the rock, and everything else. And when that was all over, we came back into the conversation. And he is, by the way, extremely open. We've already communicated six times since I've left Israel. He's listening to some of my sermons, even today, I hope. But you see, these people in Jesus' day... We're doing it to be seen by men. It was hypocritical. And so they took the typical phylactery, instead of it being a small little box, it was gigantic. It's like the pastor who has a sign on his door, don't bother me, I'm in prayer, if he's doing it to be seen by men. And so Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. Look at verse 13 in this chapter. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, A second time, verse 14, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 15, a third time, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 16 begins, woe to you, blind guides. Verse 17, you fools and blind men. Then in verse 23, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Once again, verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. A seventh row, woe, verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And his final eighth woe in verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites. Did you ever notice that when Jesus preached, he got right to the point? And if you read the whole sermon, you will see that his sermon is on clinging to that which is good and abhorring to that which is evil. And he uncovered the religious fakes of his day. Now, wonder they wanted to murder him. Then he says in verse 33, You serpents, you're nothing more than a brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? He calls it like it was. In New Testament Christianity, genuine godliness is of the heart. It's not something that you just display on the outside. Now go back to our text here in Romans, Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. And again, listen to what the apostle says. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to that which is good. Now the word cling is the word kalao, and it means literally to glue, to join firmly together. 
God tells us not just what we should not do, but he also tells us what we ought to do. And Paul uses this exact same word in Ephesians 5 when he quotes the book of Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined. There's the word again, identical word. You could say be clung to his wife and the two shall become one. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when they quote Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave, cling, be glued to his wife. Same word, a cementing together. And so God says that we are to be cemented to that which is good. Now, good can't stick to your heart. You can't cement yourself to good if you're compromising with evil. You can't make peace with sin. You've got to make a choice. But when you've made that choice, you don't leave a vacuum there. You seek, you cling, you go after that which is good. Which, of course, that good is defined in the opening verse as the good and perfect will of God found here in the Holy Scriptures. So number one, godly love is pure. Then in verses 10 and 11, the apostle teaches us that godly love is personal. Not only is it pure, it is personal. Look now, if you will, at verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Here's the word love again, but this time it's not the word agape of willful love. It's the Greek word Philadelphia. Philos, you know that word for love that is used of a family kind of love when it is connected with the word for brother. Eldelphos, brother. And so we call Philadelphia. We have a lot of Christian cities in the United States because of our Christian heritage. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Now, in the first century, the word Philadelphia was applied to blood relationships. Why? Because in a healthy, normal family, there's a certain affinity that you have for your brothers and sisters. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes a blood relationship word and he applies it to a new family, to the body of Christ. We have been made one through the blood of Christ and bound together by the same Holy Spirit who lives in each one of us. And so how should this brotherly love express itself? Very clearly, he says, first, by giving preference to one another in honor. Now, it's a little awkward to literally translate it, but I think it can be helpful. Literally, it says going before one another in honor. If you look in some other direct Greek translations, it will render it surpassing one another in honor. There is a a desire to outdo the other person in showing the other person honor. And that is so contrary to the way the world thinks. Because you are really in command when you're at the top of the food chain, when you are giving honor, uh, excuse me, when you are giving commands, not really showing honor, but taking it. But God has a different perspective for his people. As we studied several years ago in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but he says also for the interests of others. Practice the art of giving the right of way to other people. It's the idea of giving preference to someone rather than simply taking it. I love John the Baptist because he so practiced this truth. If you remember, God used him single-handedly in fulfillment of prophecy, as Malachi and Isaiah had both spoken of, that he would be the forerunner of the Lord and he would prepare his way. 
And if you remember, he was front page news across Israel in his century. And his disciples, just before he had baptized the Lord Jesus, came to him and they said, Rabbi, teacher, speaking to John, he, speaking of Christ, he who was beyond you, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. They're saying to their leader, he's taking your place. He's taking the spotlight. He's attracting the crowd. And John says, no, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's precisely what Paul is saying here in our pursuit of godliness. We are to give preference to one another in honor. Real love, godly love is descending rather than ascending. And in this day of celebrity Christianity, that's what we need to hear. Because the messages that are being preached from the pulpits in America are counter-biblical. You know, there are four members in one church, just four. Let me tell you what their names were. Everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. Let me tell you about these four members. The church had some members with some real needs. And everybody was asked to help. Everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it. But do you know who did it? Nobody. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. The church grounds also needed some work, and so somebody was asked to help. But somebody got angry about that because anybody could have done it just as well. After all, it was really everybody's job. In the end, the work was given to nobody, and nobody did a fine job. On and on this went. Whenever work was to be done, nobody could always be counted on. Nobody visited the sick. Nobody gave liberally. Nobody shared his faith. In short, nobody was a very faithful member. Finally, the day came when somebody left the church and took anybody and everybody with him. And guess who was left? Nobody. And that's what happens when we stop giving preference to one another in honor. The church doesn't grow, the church dies. Or the church very poorly reflects the love of Jesus Christ. We are to be living in holy sacrifices. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. You see those words, be devoted? Again, it's the word love that appears in the Greek New Testament. We already mentioned philadelphos, philos. This is the word philos for that family kind of love here in the spiritual body of Christ. Paul is using it. But it's joined with the word for natural affection. You see this word used in 2 Timothy 3 when he gives the signs of the last days and he puts the alpha prefix on it which discounts natural love. And he says, men will be lovers of money, lovers of self. And in that list of things he says, and without natural love. That will be a mark of the last days, the kind of love that you would expect parents to have for children and children to have for parents, or even normal marital love rather than the perverted love of our day. Paul says that will be a mark of the last days. And so Paul uses the word here positively, be devoted to one another in natural affection. Why should we? Because God has made us members one of another. In 1 John 5, 1, John uses it as a mark of conversion. Whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. If I say I love God but do not love God's children, I'm kidding myself. 
If I say I love the Lord Jesus, but do not love his church that he loves, I am deceived myself. John says in 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, now as to love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. It's a mark in Paul's mind of genuine conversion. And so you see this tension in Scripture. It's much like forgiveness. On the one hand, like in the parable of the unrighteous servant, Jesus describes that a man who has truly met God will, as a way of life, forgive. But on the other hand, while that is a mark of conversion, Paul will say to the church at Ephesus, like the Lord taught us in what we call the model or Lord's Prayer, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God has forgiven you. So on the one hand, while it is a mark of conversion, on the other hand, it is something that sometimes a Christian can withhold. On the one hand, if, you are no, if you've met Christ in conversion, if you are a Christian of the born-again brand, because that's the only brand that counts to God, then you will love of other born-again Christians. Well, on the one hand, it is a mark of conversion. It's easy to come into the church. It's easy to come into the fellowship and not to excel in showing that kind of natural storge, uh, philos kind of love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Now look at verse 11. He's speaking of love again when he says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, Serving the Lord. Now, there's a real balance in this verse. When we give honor to other people, it does not mean we sit around and do nothing. Not lagging behind in diligence. That's the first phrase. Don't be sluggish in your work. Don't shrink back from doing what God has called you and gifted you and made you to do. It's much like Solomon will write in the book of Ecclesiastes, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. If you're going to do something, do it now, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge of wisdom in Sheol and the grave where you're going. If you're going to make a difference for God, make the difference now, because one of these days you are going to be dead if Jesus doesn't come back first. And all opportunity for service will cease. But if you're going to do it, don't half do it. God doesn't want half-hearted service. He wants a job done with excellence, and so he further defines it, not lagging behind in diligence. Notice the next phrase, fervent in spirit. The word fervent is the word zeo. It just literally means boiling. It's a little awkward to translate it in English, but I think you see the meaning boiling in spirit. He's talking about enthusiasm. Who gives enthusiasm? Is it manufactured? He's not talking about personality types here. He's talking about the kind of passion, the boiling of spirit that comes because you abhor what is evil, you are clinging to what is good, and God the Holy Spirit who lives in you can fill you and direct you. And in turn, he creates that enthusiasm. So you pull out of the parking lot today and you see a brother over on the side of the parking lot with his flat tire, and you don't roll down your window and say, bless you, brother, I'll pray for you. No, you you pull over next to him and say, let me help you get that tire off. I'll help you to change it. We are to be eager. We are to be boiling in spirit to serve God's people. Godly love is pure. Godly love is personal. 
And when we conclude tomorrow, we'll see that godly love is passionate. To listen again to our message entitled, The Pursuit of Godly Love, use the Search the Scriptures app available for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM60. Perhaps you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that Tuesday mornings between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow we conclude our pursuit of godly love. Join us then as we search the scriptures.